This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Which you know, good and camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. How you doing, Christopher? I was just commenting on your uh, you're in full campaign garb right now. How's everything going, bro? Uh, things are going quite well. Uh, you know, busy, but that's the only way to be. And, you know, we're coming off of a a weekend that saw the Bears and the White Sox win, so it's uh, it's good times. Well, well, good for you. And usually we go deep into the a little deeper into the conversation about football because it is still football season. So for all y'all sending me texts about basketball, I'm not ready for that yet. It's still football <laughs> season. But I wanted to touch on something that's really become the talk, man. You know, because at the end camp, what we what we try to do is we try to talk about political stuff, but also things that within culture that everybody's talking about, but don't normally come out sometimes in, in Christian circles. So we want to have real conversations. And I don't know if you've seen it yet or not, uh, Chris, but Dave Chappelle's new comedy special on Netflix uh, is called The Closer, and it's causing quite a stir. Uh, it is causing quite a stir on the pop culture scene. Uh, some groups are calling it transphobic. Uh, and demanding that Netflix take it down. Uh, some Netflix staffers are even have even protested the the special internally. Uh, so it's a lot going on from what I understand. Netflix's uh, CEO just came out and said that they're not going to take it down. Um, he defended Chappelle, not necessarily the the substance of what Chappelle was saying, but he said that all of this is covered under artistic freedom. And we're not going to violate that artistic freedom. I think this is the third in a series of Netflix specials that Chappelle has done. Um, and I think it brings up an in- I'm bringing it up to talk about an interesting tension that I think it, it brings to bear, which is especially when it comes to LGBTQ issues, the sensitive nature of those issues, how people have you know been mistreated. And how we need to do better in, 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 in being more careful and thoughtful when it comes to those conversations. And so you have the triggers versus comedy, right? Um, there, there's this tension between what triggers people and what comedians and comedy is able to do. Now, I'll say this. You know, we've been very deliberate about that, that sensitivity and thoughtful conversation and we'll continue to be and we'll continue to spend our time and our resources advocating for people to do it better in that space. And again, the tension here is, Chris, that's intention with, you know, I personally am very slow to support the censorship of comedians. Now, whether I agree with the content of any comedy act or not is really irrelevant, right? Like, the, the point and value of comedy isn't really about agreement. It's not really even about politeness. So this isn't about agreeing with it or not. But I think we, we, we do know that the best comedians do challenge us. Right. Some go too far. Uh, the best comedians poke at us and expose our hypocrisy. Right. They make us laugh, but they also make us think and shake up our conventions and our assumptions. Now, I'll be honest with you, Chris. I did see this this uh, this act um, and this particular special is very crude, Chris. Uh, it will make you cringe for sure. And if you don't cringe, I almost think that's a problem. Like it's, it's meant to do that. Um, and so we're talking about this again, not as an endorsement of this comedy act. It's not about endorsement, 
much of what is said, if if it was said in any other context, would probably be condemnable. Most of the language is something that, you know, a lot of people just may not want to deal with. And I don't think it's language that we should be using at all. So let's let's uh, put that out there in front. But I think it's hard to say that that Chappelle doesn't challenge some very um, prevalent societal trends and narratives concerning transgenderism and transgender activism, like really only a master comedian could do, whether you agree with what he said or not. He's clearly making people feel uncomfortable and triggering them on purpose. And that's clearly his objective. But I think an underlying question, Chris, that Chappelle is raising is how much should you being triggered impact what other people can do and can say? Right. Because some people think that once they tell you that they've been triggered, that the whole conversation is automatically over, that you have to reverse course, that you have to apologize or whatever, uh, that you have to change your perspective based on them saying that. And sometimes that may be fair. But is it always fair given the subjective nature of triggers? Is it fair given that someone could say that they're triggered by things that need to be said or say that they're triggered even by certain truths? Can the concept of triggers be misused and abused by certain groups to restrict speech and eliminate certain inconvenient perspectives. That, I think, is part of the underlying question that's being asked here, even if you don't like the examples or how it was asked, right? Chappelle Chappelle seems to think that saying what you believe is the truth is more important than going out of your way to protect people's feelings. And I think if somebody said, well, he went way overboard in doing that and it was too harsh, I, I couldn't be mad at you for saying that, Right. But he seems to believe that you can trigger and offend someone and still love them. Now, as we as we see these two tensions, can we recognize the tension between trigger and comedy? And at the same time, not do away with being sensitive towards people's triggers. Right. Does it mean that you don't care that somebody is hurting? Does it mean, you know, I, I would say that if a Christian went around like their whole life was one big uh, Chappelle comedy special and was just going around offending people. I think that would be sin, right? You're not a comedian out of that context. That's probably a, that's a problem, right? Doesn't mean that triggers don't matter. And so when we look at these conversations, I know we're, that we're in a society that doesn't like nuance. It's, it's a black or white conversation, but then we have to consider that comedy's kind of meant to trigger. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, so I will start by saying that I have not seen uh, this Dave Chappelle uh, special, nor am I in any particular hurry to do so um, for plenty of reasons. But I I think that it's it's so important that we try to abide by some principles. And I think it's it's a, a good thing in some way that I haven't seen it because I'm I'm not talking about this particular instance. What I do know is that speech in different contexts has to be uh, uh, interpreted in the context where it's being made. Um, I, I can say as a preacher, right, um, part of preaching, at, at least I think good preaching, is being a little bit of a provocateur. Um, you have to uh, stir people a little bit. You have to challenge some assumptions uh, so that you can uh, create opportunities for uh, the proclamation and injection into the mind and heart of biblical truth. And so uh, uh, almost any good preacher that you'll listen to uh, will make an aim to, uh, to ask some questions uh, present some ideas, do something uh, to provoke you a little bit. Um, probably not as much as a comedian, but uh, it, it, it's a part of the discipline. So I, I understand that. Uh, so that's the first thing is that you got to look at it in, in the context for what it is. It's, it's not a political speech. It's a comedy special. Um, 
And so you have to look at it in that context. And then I just think, and I've said it over and over again, and I don't know that I can bring myself to back off of this point. Um, and, and that is that we, we have to err on the side of protecting the free ability to speak in the United States. Um, does that mean that anybody in any place at any time should be able to say whatever they want to say, whenever they want to say it, uh, with absolutely no, uh, recourse or recompense. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we have to be very careful uh, in our application of the idea of censorship of speech, because one of the things that makes our democracy and not just our democratic system of government, but the the cultural part of democracy, uh, the thing, one of the things that makes it work is the idea that I can be in support of your ability and freedom to say a thing, even if I 100% disagree with it, um, even if I never want to listen to you say it, um, even if I wish and pray every day that you won't ever say it, and still be in favor of your right to say it. Um, I think it's very fundamental to the to the way that we live and exist and govern ourselves. And if, if the consensus is that we're changing that, I think we're changing something very, very fundamental um, about who we are as a people. And that is not something that should be yeah. done very lightly. Yeah. I mean, once you start censoring comedians who are in a way not to be taken seriously, but ought to be taken seriously, right? It's, it's, yeah. There's a tension there as well. I think you're in a bad space once you once you start censoring. And that and, and somebody could say, would you feel that way if it was some a comedian being racist? Absolutely. I, mean, Absolutely. I, I, I will say this. I haven't seen the uh, the Chappelle special. I have seen comedians saying things that I think are racist. Mm. And I, I've actually seen how folks in, in that comedic situation can realize that something that they thought was insignificant is actually significant because after the joke is said, there's an uncomfortableness with laughing at that joke. It's like, yep. and, and that could make somebody realize in a way that no other speech can, wait a minute, may, maybe I do need to analyze how I'm thinking about these issues because I didn't think that was funny. Like, I didn't think that was like, like even if the joke was funny, I don't want to laugh at that. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's, it, I just think we should be careful with it. Yeah. Got to be very careful. I mean, what's the tension between what we're, I'm getting at here is what's the tension between triggers and comedy? Whether you think the good comedy is good or bad. And are there certain truths that could be in conflict with our feelings? And what do we do about that? So you guys can decide whether you like it or not, whether he was out of line or not. I think as many of you will come to the conclusion that some of it was out of line. Is it completely void of value because of that? And should it be censored because of that? You be the judge. But as usual, we're going to get into some politics now, with that's, which that's not completely outside of politics. But uh, we'll see what happens with it. Keep your eye on it. But as usual, folks, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian, Chris, I was reading an article uh, yesterday uh, by Derek Thompson, uh, was, wrote a pretty interesting article for The Atlantic entitled America is running out of everything. And he starts by saying this. He says, is it me or does it feel like America is running out of everything? I visited CVS last week to pick up some at home COVID-19 tests. They'd been sold out for a week, the employee told me. So I asked about paper towels. Uh, we're out of those, too, he said. Try Walgreens. I drove to a Walgreens that had paper towels. But when I asked the pharmacist to fill uh, some very common prescriptions, he told me that the store had run out. Try Target up the road, he said. Target's pharmacy had the meds, but its front area was alarmingly barren like the canned food section of a grocery store one hour before a hurricane makes landfall. This is the economy now. One-hour errands are now multi-hour odysseys. Next-day deliveries are becoming day-after-next deliveries. The car part you need? It'll take an extra, extra week. I'm sorry. The baby crib you bought? 
Make it December. Eyeing a new home improvement job that requires several construction workers. Well, I think you guys get the point. This is what Thompson is calling the pandemic economy, where the GDP is growing, but we're suffering from shortages of many different products. From test kits, which are very important right now, to car parts, semiconductors, uh, ships, shipping containers, and workers. It's what he calls an everything shortage, which isn't the result of just one big bottleneck. But he says there is actually the result of a bunch of bottlenecks in different sectors of our economy. Global supply chains are clogged up for multiple reasons. And we'll kind of discuss some of those reasons uh, now. One of the things is that during the pandemic, people were stuck at home. Uh, but they were ordering goods like furniture and uh, doing home improvements. And because they were giving uh, given government checks uh, that kind of help people keep going. So I think those were necessary. Their ability to keep buying uh, kind of continued. Uh, in many cases, these goods have to be imported from East Asia. But the Delta variant has caused significant shutdowns in that region. The supply chain slowed down right as the demand went up. Also, there's a serious traffic jam when it comes to Americans por- America's ports. Uh, there simply uh, there simply aren't enough parking spots uh, or parking spaces, so to speak, for all the ships. Again, there's a lot of consumer demand, but also a shortage of trucks, truck drivers, and port workers. Now, Thompson points out that this is Econ 101, right? Uh, that when you have a high demand plus a limited supply, that equals high prices. Let me give you an example. Before the pandemic, a shipping container that holds 35,000 books cost about $2,500. That same shipping container now with that same product would cost $25,000. Again, orders for truck parts are backed up and there's a lack of drivers. A 60,000 driver shortage To be exact, this is due to recruitment issues, early retirements, COVID cancellations of driving schools and so on. Every stage of the supply chain is breaking down. Next, you have to look at the labor market. Job openings have hit record highs in restaurants, hotels and other leisure and hospitality sectors. Companies are struggling to fill jobs and aren't at capacity. Now, there's uh, there's uh, likely several explanations from this, and we'll, we'll go over a few of them. Number one, unemployment insurance and several rounds of stimulus have allowed workers to be more picky about their jobs. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Uh, I think that's good. Who wants somebody to have to be in a job that they don't want to be in? Uh, but it does hurt employers, at least in the short term. And it leaves consumers with, again, an everything shortage. And then finally, the delivery of mail has slowed down. The U.S. Postal Service has reduced the use of air transportation to save money. So now they're relying on rail and trucks, which means that they're engaging the same bottlenecks and shortages that I've been mentioning throughout this conversation. All these things raise the probability of recession. And it's going to make your holiday shopping a lot more difficult. In fact, the article says that you need to go ahead and do your holiday shopping now unless you want to have some kids who are uh, missing presents because there's just nothing left. So what's the solution, Ancamp? Uh, for Thompson, he suggests that we need to make more products like semiconductors, uh, home goods, and shopping and shipping containers. Excuse me. We need to make more of those things in America instead of being so reliant on East Asia and namely China. You see, for decades, many U.S. companies moved manufacturing overseas, taking advantage of cheaper labor and cheaper materials. This de-industrialized parts of America and created an environment for the supply chain breakdown that we are experiencing right now. And so he says that we need to restore manufacturing, which is actually part of Biden's Build Back Better plan that is being held up in Congress now. And unfortunately, it's being coupled with some things that don't play into this, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere at this moment. 
So a, a lot to this conversation. I think we've both talked about how manufacturing has gone overseas and what that's done to especially middle of, you know, the middle part. And I mean, just regionally map wise, the middle part of America uh, has just really uh, been hurt from that. But but what's your take on this supply chain shortage and, and where we go from here, Chris? Um, I, I think it's a, a very, very important uh, conversation. One of the things that I think might be somewhat wanting in the discussion right now is to sort of take the opportunity to take a step back and start to, to ask ourselves some bigger questions. So we, we know some of the, the details around shortage, breakdown in supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's an opportunity to step back and ask a larger question around, like, what is the purpose of the economy? Um, you know, it, it, it strikes me that we're having a conversation around the idea of a shortage when we, we really haven't had a robust conversation as a society, as a nation around the idea of enough. Right. And I think especially on mm, mm, uh, mm. A, a podcast where we're talking to uh, believing people, I think we have to ask ourselves that question first. Um, you know, uh, uh, what is enough? Right. Are we are we are we getting to that place? And I think even before you get to or as you answer that question, there's this question in my mind about what is the purpose of the economy? Um, we talk about the economy as if the end of the economy is consumption. Right. And so we have to feed consumerism uh, and we have to continue to grow consumerism. And if you if you watch, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, business news and, and read the paper, you hear about, you know, consumer demand roaring back. And, uh, you know, if, if it goes down, then it's weak. And uh, like all of that stuff builds this narrative that the end of the economy is to continue to uh, to consume more and more and more. Uh, and, and, and I think that the end of the economy might be different, like the purpose of the economy might be described something more along the lines of the welfare of the citizens, right? The the welfare of the people inside of the society, right? That is what the economy is supposed to be trying to produce is, is actual welfare. And, you know, when I say welfare, I'm not talking about like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, welfare programs. It's like actual, the wellness of people. So that people have the things that they need um, to enjoy life, and if that's the goal of the economy, then we have an opportunity to to start to address this current crisis in some different ways without just thinking about, well, how do we get everybody consuming more and more and more again so that the economy can be, quote unquote, strong uh, and, and actually begin to measure the economy according to different metrics Um mm-hmm. Does that mean that all of the things that we're describing today as problems are not problems? Absolutely not. I think they are. Um, but the fact that we have these problems uh, actually gives us an opportunity to ask some interesting questions and maybe do some things that we would not have been able to do in our economy without this uh, sort of crisis moment. That's such an interesting. Th- I think I think that's a very good point. And it brings up the, the conversation like our our economy seems to be so consumer based, though. It's almost as if if you do stop buying, it's not only bad because you have less stuff, it's bad because there are now less jobs and all that, all this other stuff. Right. So it, it has an impact on other things that, that are going on. It's a question that we have to answer. And I'm sure that when you're talking about consumption and you're not saying that we should use less toilet paper. Right. So there are some things that, uh, you know, that may be necessities. But outside of those necessities, and I can even say this for my household, maybe there was some uh excesses right when it comes when it came to just consuming things because you're kind of sitting there and thinking about what could i be doing i'm kind of bored so maybe i just go and buy something uh that happens and as christians that's problematic right so even as i say that that's a that's something that i had to discuss in my household and i had to uh, uh, have a conversation with myself about doing that uh that's a problem that's problematic right that type of materialism and um we've really gotten i think consumerism just in general can be at odds with with Christian with Christianity in our perspective. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, when I say this, I, I hope nobody hears me to be preaching at them because I'm preaching this, like you said, Justin, to myself the most. Uh, I, 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 I talk about it to, to my wife. I talk about it to my friends. I talk about it to the Lord. Uh, and I'm trying to grow in this area. But I think like in this week, uh, I lost my dongle that allows me to plug, you know, a regular headphone set into my mm-hmm. iPhone. And I ordered it on Amazon, which anybody who's heard me talk about Amazon, that's already, you know, what you're doing, Pastor Chris. Uh, And not only did I order on Amazon, you know, they give you the option of, uh, you know, the most express delivery, or you can get it on your sort of Amazon day. Everything comes in one package, but then it's going to take a little bit longer. And those are the types of things that we have to start asking ourselves in the, in the local, like in our own household, like, can I, can I actually survive for mm-hmm. three additional days without being able to plug, you know, a headset into my uh, phone? And, and not to mention Uber Eats, right? Where you just sit there because you don't want right. to get up. So you spend like 50 extra dollars. Like, it'll, it'll like, hey, this thing, it costs like eight ninety nine. Somehow by the time you get over, it's like sixty nine ninety nine. You're like, you know what? I'm tired. I don't feel like getting up. There's a lot. There are a lot of things that play into this. But our overall view of what the economy is about and what purpose it should serve, I think, is a great, a great point that you make. Folks, we're going to be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. We got a lot more to talk about. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. This is Justin Gibney, and I'm sitting here with the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, I want to I want to follow up on a story that we discussed earlier this year. Uh, As you may recall and the audience may recall, Purdue Pharma, the maker of Oxycontin, was allowed to file for bankruptcy as a shield from greater financial accountability. The Sackler family who owns the controlling interest in Purdue, was basically given immunity. The bankruptcy plan allows the Sacklers to walk away without any personal liability and without an admission of guilt for the role they played in America's opioid crisis. According to an article in Stat, and listen to what was said here, uh, in 1996, Dr. Richard Sackler asked people gathered for a launch party to envision natural disasters like an earthquake, a hurricane, or a blizzard. The debut of Oxycontin, said Sackler, will be followed by a blizzard of prescriptions that will bury the competition. And he was absolutely right. He just forgot to add the part about it burying American people as well. Five years later, as questions were raised about the risk of addiction and overdoses that came with taking Oxycontin and and, and other opioid medications, Sackler outlined a strategy that critics have long accused the company of of, of unleashing. This was his strategy. His strategy was to divert the blame onto others, particularly the people who became addicted to opioids themselves. He said, We have to hammer on the abusers in every way possible. This was in a an email in February of 2001. They are the culprits and the problem. They are the reckless criminals. This was, again, Dr. Richard Sackler. After all this was said and we have these emails and we see this strategy An article in Time magazine described the court process in dealing with this, the bankruptcy process, not as a trial with a judge and a jury of one's peers, but they dealt with this kind of much more like a meeting, uh, a meeting with a bunch of highly paid attorneys that would decide how this was going to go. Now, thankfully, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice is pushing back on this sweetheart deal with these drug dealers. I'm sorry, I mean drug makers. They filed an appeal uh, with the court to block this bankruptcy plan. The appeal was filed just days after the bankruptcy court approved about $7 million in executive bonuses for Purdue CEO and other executives. $7 million 
in bonuses for the same company that pretty much created the opioid crisis. Now, most of they're getting seven million dollars, but most of the victim families involved in these lawsuits will receive just five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars when some of some of them are dealing with treatment bills of almost half a million dollars. A temporary restraining order has been issued by a court putting the bankruptcy plan on hold. So at least that terrible bankruptcy plan is on hold for now. My question here is, Chris, how in the world and why in the world does Purdue Pharma still exist? How are they allowed to still be in the pharmaceutical business after causing an epidemic of drug addiction? When when street drug dealers are caught, they usually lose everything they gained with the illegal profits along with losing their freedom. Yet the Sackler family is still living large and shielded from taking personal liability after engaging in deceptive marketing practices that led people to getting opioids that didn't even need them. Now, I'm not saying that the street drug dealer should get away, but it does seem like this isn't really an equitable way to deal with these kind of issues. May I remind everyone who's listening today that nearly 100,000 people are thought to have died from overdoses in 2020. That was the deadliest toll toll from overdoses in American history. Life expectancy in the United States is in a sustainable decline in part because of the epidemic of drug abuse. And now it's being reported by Breaking Points and others <laughs> that the Sackler family is threatening to blow up the settlements if they don't get immunity. The audacity. In no way should they be dictating the terms of anything. What kind of Mickey Mouse judicial system are we running here? Now, let's be clear, Chris. Everybody deserves a fair trial, but we must be very serious and thoughtful and judicious when we ask, what does fairness and justice demand in this circumstance? If ever there was a reason to pierce the corporate veil and have the people behind the corporation be liable for something they did, this is the, this is the time. This is the circumstance. This is the situation. The Sacklers getting immunity. And honestly, the Sacklers not going to jail after that quote that we just heard is against the entire spirit of our justice system. Now, Chris, thankfully, the Democrats have proposed a bill that would keep corrupt business owners like the Sacklers from receiving protection from this type of liability. But groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Johnson and Johnson are spending a lot of money to lobby against that bill. Chris, I just want to hear what you, what your thoughts on are on this uh, this whole situation in general, man. Just just let me know. Yeah, I mean, you lay this thing out so well, uh, Justin, and I would uh, add my amen first to the things that you just said, um, and then take the opportunity just to point out uh, that this is the kind of thing that can happen in a society in which we allow uh, the the folks at the very, very top of the sort of power structures to keep everyday folks uh, divided and separated from one another based on uh, sort of like the, the sort of, by starting this sort of cultural hate. Um, this is one example, a, a significant and uh, important example of how pharmaceutical companies are impacting our lives uh, on an everyday basis and getting rid of it. I mean, getting away with it. Um, you can look like you have this issue of the opioid crisis. Anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast and you know people in your community, in your church, uh, who have folks in their families who suffered from this sitting behind 
this opioid crisis that ravaged your community is a large pharmaceutical corporation uh, sitting behind uh, some of the shortages that you were talking about, Justin, and uh, not being able to access test kits, not being able to get uh, vaccines across the world uh, so that we stop seeing uh, you know these this this rapid you know uh, mutation of of COVID sitting behind that stuff is 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 uh, large pharmaceutical corporations sitting behind the idea that the government still does not negotiate better prices for uh, you know the the medicines that folks actually need are these large corporations and un- unless and until a mass movement of people, which would include folks from a lot of different sort of cultural backgrounds, folks from a lot of different um, racial groups, and uh, it would be a combination of rural, suburban, urban, working class people actually get together and start to really put pressure on our uh, government representatives and say, hey, this, you know, we'll fight about all this stuff that we disagree about. We'll fight about that stuff later. But these types of things are obvious and we should be dealing with it more severe. There's no way in the world uh, that you should be able to say these types of things, go out and execute that sort of um, evil in the society and then just walk away. That should not happen. But there's got to be pressure from people, the people, to make clear that we won't tolerate it. Otherwise, it absolutely will just continue to go this way. Yeah, and, and people fighting against bills that are, and maybe the, the bill needs to be worked on. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't know the whole of this Sackler bill that's coming up to try to make sure that companies that do, do things like this aren't protected. Maybe it needs to be worked on. But I can't see why anybody in Congress would not want to say, hey, something needs to be done about this. And the groups that are fighting this bill they need to be addressed. They need to be confronted, man. We want to say, you know, that we have this just system. And I think justice is done within our system, but it, it's got some work to be done. How in the world can somebody plan to flood the streets and what they say on the streets to flood the streets with product? And then when all these people get addicted, you're good. You don't go to jail. You don't take a pay cut. You still get a bonus. What message is that sending? Because the lesson here seems to be that if you have enough high powered lawyers, if you have the right licenses, if you have the right connections and you have the right money, you can create an epidemic of drug addiction and still dictate the terms of your punishment, still have a say. And what the deal is going to this shouldn't be about no deal. There should be no Purdue Pharma. What, what what can you do as a pharmaceutical company that's more irresponsible other than just making something that just kills people immediately? What what else can you do? And this is why people have issues with the system. Laughing, joking, and this isn't about a class thing, but laughing and joking, making all the money you want. And um, the American people, black, white, every everybody are dying. Fentanyl gets introduced once all this other stuff runs out. This is all coming from the same trail of lies and greed and it's pure wickedness. And if all you do is get slapped on the wrist and don't even really get your your company even taken away, just lose some money that was there and folks still getting their their bonuses. We got to do better, man. We we have to do better because what I know is that JoJo from the West Side Atlanta is riding in jail for selling weed, and you got folks pulling this off and, and making deals and talking about what they're not going to do. I'll let you take us out, Chris. Yeah, I, I would just say, if perchance somebody who is you know a a, a government representative is listening to this, uh, you you may look at this and be like, hey, if nothing happens. It'll probably go way underreported. Nobody will ever know. And you may be right. But if you are at all interested in beginning to turn the tide and restore the faith and trust of people in institution of government, uh, get this right. Actually dish out some real punishment uh, on this piece. That will get known. You let folks off. That's what's expected. 
probably nobody will know. Things will stay the same. But we're thinking, and there's an opportunity here to start to restore some trust, actually punish this Sackler family. Um, and I think it will do a lot to start to move in the right direction of restoring trust. Yeah, man. I know we have folks who listen to this, who work on the Hill and everything else, man. Bring it up. Say something about this, man. As Christians, we cannot watch something like this happen and say nothing. Say something. We'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. This next conversation has to do with education. Uh, According to the New York Times, uh, the mayor of New York has unveiled a plan to replace the gifted student programs, which has become what they say a glaring symbol of segregation in the New York City elementary schools. For in, uh, and so they're getting rid of it in the New York elementary schools for incoming students. The folks who are already in those programs will stay, but those programs won't continue after they're gone. Um, Chris, I'll be honest with you, and I want you to talk about this more than me um, because you are the education e- expert and maybe you can change my mind on this. But I'm surprised, number one, that they use the term segregation. Like, I understand that most of these uh, programs are filled with uh, white and Asian students. There aren't as many black and Hispanic students. But that seems like a very sloppy use of the term. And I think it's another example of where progressives really need to work on their hyperbolic and lazy use of language. I'm going to just be honest. Uh, I don't think it's doing them any favors. Now, I do appreciate the acknowledgement of disparities because I do think this is an example of the disparities that we see in education. But I think calling it segregation and ending the program altogether just seems like really bad policy to me. Uh, That doesn't seem like it's the right way to go. Uh, But again, Chris, I kind of want to hear what you have to say as as an education expert. Yeah, I I would 100 percent agree that calling this segregation is the wrong way to get at the problem. Um, And I'll say that the reason it is not segregation, which is something that we have had um, in the history of education uh, in the United States. The reason this is not segregation is is that you, you really don't have at the at the core of the program, the goal of separating uh, different races of people from uh, one another. Now, you you do have these uh, disparate outcomes, which are should be unacceptable in any school district, but it, 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 it's not based on segregation. It's, it's based on uh, a number of other factors that we could get into about how to fix like a gifted program. Um, you know, when they test for these programs, I think in New York, they test pretty early. Uh, and when you test very, very early uh, for these gifted programs, you're usually not testing for aptitude. Uh, you're really testing for opportunity. You're, you're, you're testing how involved the, the parent has been in reading to the child and the type of opportunities that the child has had before they ever came to school. So it's really not an aptitude type thing. Uh, so w- when you test and all these things, um, what's in the test, a lot of these things could begin to make the uh, the programs less disparate. But I think the whole conversation is actually missing uh, a broader point because I, I think 
the uh, the whole debate and the tensions uh, in the debate are actually the result of something much uglier in our school systems, especially the larger uh, the school districts get. And, and this is this whole deficit sort of mindset, right? The reason this issue is so visceral um, for so many parents and families, especially again in large unit school districts, uh, is because these special programs are usually not the difference between like a high quality education. And then if you get into the program, you get like the super high quality education. Mm-hmm. Usually these programs are the difference between success and failure. And these families know it. These families know that the rule in a lot of these school districts is a is a unsupported, insufficient uh, educational experience for your child. And so if you don't get into one of the special programs, you're kind of screwed. And families know that. And so this conversation becomes very visceral. It becomes visceral for uh, families whose students uh, seem to disproportionately not get into the program. Uh, and then when you start talking about taking it away, it's going to become visceral for the families who are in the program because what is, you know, you put these these uh, titles on here about gifted and, uh, you know, selective and whatever other kind of title you want to put on there to put forward this idea that, well, we have this great education in general population, but if you get into this program, it's like a really, really great education. Mm-hmm. And families know that that's just not the case. Uh, so I went to one of these high schools, uh, Justin. I went to you know the selective high school in Chicago where everybody wants to go to. And I can tell you, we were not studying like astrophysics and advanced philosophy, right? It, it, it was kind of the sort of education that you would want any high schooler to receive. Uh, and the fact that we have embraced this idea that, that school districts are not responsible for providing that quality of education for every student in the school district is actually the thing that feeds this conversation and all this tension around the selective programs. We really need to, to have a conversation about how do we make sure that there is an opportunity for a very high quality education for every single student in the school district. Mm, that's good, man. That's a, some very good background, really providing exactly what I, I was hoping uh, that you would come with. Now, something I'll say is that this was uh, kind of signed uh, and proposed by Bill de Blasio, who's the current mayor. But the guy who looks like he's going to be the next mayor, which is Eric Adams, is saying he ain't going for it so that it's not actually going to be implemented because it would have to be implemented by the next administration because, you know, you basically have a uh, a mayor who's on on his way out. So a conversation we need to have about education and who's getting the education, who's not getting it. There's different ways to deal with it. But I think just getting rid of this program instead of trying to make sure that it's either more fair or that we're looking at the education that all the other schools are providing is really pr- problematic. Because w- one thing I, I don't pretend like we have a per- perfect meritocracy in America. We do not have a perfect meritocracy in America. It's just not true. That said, merit still matters. Merit has to matter. Um, and we don't we don't necessarily want to push a push against that. We want to make it better because when you have merit, I believe that you become more equitable as you give people equal opportunities. And that's really what you know, that's kind of the place that we want to get. We want to get to that equity. But we, we don't have to remove programs like this that show us the disparity. Right. You don't remove the program because it shows you disparity. You try to do something different. Anything you, you'd want to add to what you said? Yeah, I mean, I think you you pointed out, like, we focus a lot of our conversation in education uh, around achievement and outcomes. And the real gap is actually in opportunities. Um, and so if, if we could focus more of our attention on creating new opportunities, not taking existing opportunities mm-hmm. away, but right. focus more attention, resources, money on creating new opportunities, um, I think we can get to solving some of these problems. The, the, the issue is, are we actually ready to center children and families in our education discussions and in our education policy, which is usually dominated by, I'll just leave it at other interests, mm-hmm. um, 
usually dominate that conversation. But if we can ever get to a place where we're really centering children and families, uh, then we could begin to focus attention and resources on creating more opportunities. We, 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 the, the gap that we have is, is that we need to, is, is not in an, an, an outcome sort of a gap. I think there's so many young people who have so much inside of them. And, and I'm not just talking like stuff, right? I, I literally know guys who are in eighth grade with me who were every lick of smart, witty, capable. I got lotteried in, they got lotteried out, and it put our lives on very different trajectories. Um, it's not a, an aptitude issue. It's an opportunity issue. That's good, man. Uh, listen, guys, you just heard commentary on a lot of different subjects that you're not going to hear that kind of commentary hardly anywhere else. Uh, there were no we weren't worried about partisan lines. We weren't worried about ideological lines. We were trying to get at the truth. We're trying to challenge our audience. And if you really appreciate this kind of conversation, we're going to keep bringing it to you. But we need your support. It is not free. We got to get all this stuff done. And it takes a lot of our time. So if you uh, appreciate what we're doing, you can always go to our, our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics. You can go to the website. And you can give to the organization. That's it. Uh, and campaign.org. Just support us. It doesn't have to be much. And if you don't have anything to give, that's cool, too. You can always holler at a friend and shoot them a text or shoot them the, the link to this uh, to this podcast. Man, we need your help. We want you to join uh, this movement, not just watch it. We need you to be a part of it. And as always, and camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and camp. I'll let This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?